You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a markets reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week, we'll discuss how the Federal Reserve signaled it may be ready to lower interest rates. That helped send the S&P 500 to an intraday record, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the risks are gone. Rather, the G20 meeting is next week, and now there's actually concerns over a real war with Iran after a U.S. drone was shot down. Meanwhile, the March of the Unicorns continues with Slack Technologies making its triumphant debut on Wall Street. And our guests will help us sort all of that out. And of course, we'll finish with our tradition, the craziest thing I ever saw in markets this week. Sarah, I'm assuming you're prepared. As always. Oh, good. Well, our two guests, Sarah, today, I don't know if you realize, but they both remind me of my days uh, over on Bloomberg Opinion. Well, it was called Gadfly back then. And this is back when I was licensed and accredited to actually have opinions in this company. I'm not allowed to do that. You're no no longer allowed to have opinions. No. And I'll tell you, having opinions is harder than it it sounds. I mean, it's one thing to call up someone and get his opinions on the market. And then if he's wrong, it's it's his problem. You can move on. But when you have to have them yourself, it's it's actually uh, pretty intimidating. Uh, but our first guest here, uh, Julian Emanuel of BTIG, the Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Welcome to the show, Julian. Great to be here. And Julian, now, when I used to have opinions, I can assure you they were all valid, serious opinions, <laughs> except on Fridays when I went off my meds. And one week, one week, the story I wrote about was a Bloomberg story about how J. Crew had widened neckties by a quarter inch. Okay, and that made me think we have to do a league table of the best dressed men on Wall Street to to find out how wide their their neckties were. And you did, and and I did, and I did, and I'll tell you, some of our friends in Bloomberg did not perform well in this league table. Uh, John Farrow was at the bottom <laughs> at about two and a quarter. I'll bring uh, that up with him. Yeah, see if absolutely. he's improved. Luke Kawa was near the bottom at two and a quarter. Julian, I'm proud to say, was right in the middle, which I think is where you want to be in this particular league table. Three and a, <laughs> three and a quarter. I got to call you out on that one, Mike, because basically a couple of years ago, I was on with Keen, and Tom looked at me and said, that is a beautiful 1995 Brooks Brothers suit. So I uh, <laughs> don't know about that. 
I'm not even sure if you voluntarily participated or if I just uh, hijacked you with a ruler after you came off TV or something. I I, I can't remember. Yeah. How do you even get? To, I'm, I'm surprised you got so many people to participate. He was right in the middle. And I think that is the sweet spot right at near the national benchmark average. You don't want to be in the in the tail of this bell curve at all. But also from Bloomberg Opinion, uh, my old pal Shira Oveday, who covers all things technology and whatnot, Shira can probably explain that maybe that necktie story is why I'm no longer allowed to have opinions (laughs) at at Bloomberg. Disagree. We need more necktie content on Bloomberg Opinion. I was hoping someone would refresh that league table once a year, but but no luck. luck. Can you imagine if they assigned it to an intern or someone new, um, make sure that they track every single person down and measure their neckties? I have to admit that I am looking at your necktie right now, Mike, to see how wide it is. It's a little wide, a little, little wide. But anyway, from neckties to Fed, I don't really know how to make that a a truly smooth transition. If anyone has ideas, shout, let me know. But Julian, I want to come to you because everyone was talking about before the Fed meeting on Wednesday, the statement that it was going to be so difficult for them to truly outdub the markets. But it seems like they did. I mean, is that truly what happened here? That is definitely part of it. And I have to say, I'll give you the transition here. Chair Powell's necktie uh, at the press conference was about as tight as it could possibly have been. (laughs) Wow. uh, Given the the tweets of the previous 48 hours. Um, (laughs) You know, from our point of view, we actually expected that the Fed might disappoint given the dovish expectations. But uh, Chair Powell really did come through. um, and, And you can see it in the market pricing in uh, really a 100% chance uh, of a 25 basis point uh, cut at the July meeting and actually almost a 25% chance mm-hmm. of a 50 basis point cut. Uh, so the markets definitely did like it. But importantly, the Fed liked the market's reaction to what it said. Right. But uh, last I read from you, you're actually thinking it, it won't come until September, that that first cut, and then maybe another in December. Is that still your thinking after uh, this week's performance by Powell? We're sticking with that, although clearly the, the odds have skewed the potential uh, for July. But if you think about the sort of quandary that the Fed chair is in, if you wait till September, particularly given the market's positive reaction Uh, over the last several days, um, and what we think could be positive news coming out of G20 uh, in the next week and a half or so, um, the asset markets are perhaps giving the Fed the time to wait. And if you think about it again, from this challenge of the tight necktie uh, with regard to political independence, waiting past July sends a message that the Fed is independent uh, of, of the White House, number one, and importantly, actually, is independent of what the market is trying to force them to do with the knowledge that you could still go in September and continue apace. So there are many people who say that if we don't get a rate cut now in July, because it is so highly expected, that we are going to see pretty much a fit from the market. Well, your guys' price target, I know, for your end is still around 3000 How is it that you guys see the potential for the Fed to not cut in July, but stocks to really still hang in there and potentially move much higher? Well, you know, setting a new all-time high uh, this week, at least on an intraday basis, as we have, um, we're pretty darn close to that 3000 right. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, happily so, of course. Uh, but in that respect, it, it really is a case of, you know, whether you measure it in terms of uh, financial conditions and the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index is is really a very valuable tool. And that is reasonably loose 
compared to the last year and a half or so. Um, the Fed actually has the leeway. And if the market walks back its own expectations, particularly if you get good news from Trump and Xi, and remember, we've also got earnings season uh, reporting starting in the middle of July, which mm-hmm. tends to be a tailwind uh, for stocks in general, you still get the 3000 Now, what does good news at the G20 look like? Is it a handshake and a a letter to keep talking? Uh, Is it, I mean, obviously they're not going to presumably have a a deal signed, sealed, and delivered between the U.S. and China there. What what would sort of, you know, define good news to you at the G20? Well, I think it smiles after the steak dinner, red wine for Xi, and (laughs) Diet Diet Coke for (laughs) President Trump, as, as appears to be the case. Yeah. But for us, if you look at financial markets over the last several years, whatever the quandary has been, Brexit, debt ceiling, China, whatever it is, if you're able to successfully call it kick the can down the road Mm -hmm. and leave Mm -hmm. markets optimistic that you're going to get an eventual dissolution to whatever it is, that's going to be enough. And we think that's the case here, particularly since in the last 48 hours, it's very clear that North Korea is on the table as well. When it comes to a trade deal versus a Fed cut, say you can only get one or another, which is actually more valuable for the stock market? I mean, in a way, can you make the case that maybe a deal at the G20 or really a positive outcome there isn't the greatest outcome because then maybe the Fed takes that away and they start to see economic data turn around, really start to tighten up, toughen up, and the Fed decides that they're not going to cut. The data doesn't imply it. Well, so we give Chairman Powell a lot of credit for pivoting as quickly as he did in January uh, from uh, from tightening to neutral. But the way this week has sorted itself out, we are in easing mode, whether we actually get the cuts or they're delayed. And so, you know, we don't expect a repivot back to neutral or tightening. In that respect, the trade deal is really very important because if you look at the last year, And the cause of the Fed's concern, it's been inflation being too low. And one of the mistakes the Fed made last year in tightening, we think they over-tightened and shouldn't have tightened in December, was in assuming that a trade war was going to be inflationary. And in fact, it's proven to be disinflationary by, by leaps and bounds. Now, Julian, your business card says chief equity and derivatives strategist. So I want to I want to ask you about the der- derivatives end a little bit. You know, I've noticed the VIX has sort of flattened out here at about 15 or so uh, during June. We're not getting back to those single digit readings on implied volatility as far as the VIX goes. Um, is there any information in that to you? I mean, is it just sort of uh, embedded nervousness until all these issues are resolved or or what? I mean, are those days of single-digit VIX just, just gone forever? Gone. For, gone. Forget about them. The, we, we traded below nine at the end of 2017. And, and when we began our coverage at BTIG in January of 18, we made the point that that was a turning point in what we saw as a six-year cyclical regime change in volatility. And so obviously the spikes that we saw throughout 2018, and then again in uh, in early uh, this year, um, to us uh, make sense. They're logical, and when you think about it, with respect to the political risks that are building as the world really redraws itself in terms of trade and, and relationships and so on, it makes a lot of sense. And what it also tells you, it's a reminder that 
while things seem good now and and we do think that there is enough uh, good news out there to potentially to carry markets, perhaps even beyond 3000, we're still going to have to deal with the debt ceiling and a budget battle in the fall. And Brexit, the thing, the gift that keeps on giving (laughs) is going to be there. Waiting for Halloween. Exactly. October 31st. Exactly. What about the divergence that we've seen, though, between volatility in the bond market and volatility in the stock market? Because I know if you use the move index from Bank of America as a sort of benchmark for bond market volatility, we have seen such a spike in recent weeks. And now we have the 10-year dipping below 2% for the first time in 2016. Yet the VIX is still very muted. I mean... Do you make the case that we will have to see a convergence, the two come together? And if so, I mean, does the VIX move higher or does bond volatility finally start to settle down a little? We think there will be a convergence uh, probably in the, in the guise of bond market volatility coming in and, and the VIX rising. Um, essentially, it, it, a lot of the activity in financial markets over the last year has been about positioning. So when we got to the end of March and uh, German yields first went back to the negative bound, Mm -hmm. which, you know, to all of us financial professionals with any gray hair is almost completely inconceivable. There was a a, an initial panic. But then in in April, as markets sort of turned better and and yield stabilized, there was a thought that you wouldn't have the U.S. 10 year yield go back to two percent. Well, that sort of went out the window the last few weeks. I mean, honestly, we didn't see yields uh, plunging to this depth. But then again, we didn't see German yields trading to minus 30 basis points. And that caused what uh, we call in the options market a short gamma squeeze. Uh, Basically, people had been selling sort of those downside strikes and and really short exposure in that area. And once you got to around 2%, the vol started to build. We think ultimately, in fact, as the Fed uh, loosens policy at the short end, builds inflation expectations that you actually have a rise in the long end, uh, i.e. a steepening yield curve. And that's part of the happiness of the last several days if you're Jay Powell, because inflation expectations were the first thing to ratchet higher uh, post the FOMC conference. Uh, now, given what you're expecting, uh, some good news at the G20, an eventual monetary easing later in the year, what sort of sectors, stocks, would it be your, your traditional cyclical, industrials, semiconductors, or, you know, our tech columnist here, Shira, should she uh, start writing about utilities instead? What, you know, how, how should we position- <laughs> The new momentum, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, having been doing this for quite some time, I never thought I'd use the phrase momentum darling when referring yeah. to utilities. I mean, <laughs> again, going back to the 90s and, and, and trading technology on the way up, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, from our point of view, this is the part of the cycle, particularly given our view that the yield curve is going to steepen, um, that you want to lean a bit more cyclically oriented. And that means financials, which have been suppressed because, again, German yields and the yield curve being as flat as it's been. Also, energy. Obviously, energy is uh, has a geopolitical backstop at this point, given the tension in Iran. But it's also sunk to less than 5% of the weight of the S&P yeah. 500. And we are true believers in autonomous driving and electric vehicles and all that. But energy is still a story that in in the medium term looks very interesting to us. And it's a sector that's poised for consolidation.
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Sure, I want to come to you because we did have a new IPO or direct listing, as we could call it, this week. But start a little broader on the tech front because software companies are just trading at such high valuations. I know software is the best performing industry in the S&P 500. What is it about this market right now that is just making investors so interested in the software space? I think it's a particular type of software companies that investors are really excited about. These sort of software as a service or B2B software, cloud software companies, however you want to describe them. But these are companies that investors have fallen in love with kind of to the point of mania. We're talking about companies like Workday or Salesforce Mm -hmm. or Viva Systems, which makes pharmaceutical software. And I think the appeal here is these companies sell an understood product. They sell software for money to companies that have money. And there's kind of a repeat business, right? It's a subscription basis. You're the companies are paying, you know, monthly or on an annual basis, and it's sort of fairly easy to model out what the revenue model and what the financial model looks like long term mm-hmm. once you get companies paying kind of a, a recurring subscription for software. And so what you've seen is these companies have, you know, for the most part, do not have profits, but they do have revenue and free cash flow in some cases and are trading at very, very high multiples to revenue in particular. Now, sure, let's uh, let's pretend I'm not the young, hipster, tech-savvy guy that I am. Because we all know you are. <laughs> Just imagine, I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged dad. Talking about the, the width of your necktie. That's right. Necktie <laughs> You're more of a Jonathan Farrow right. kind of skinny Just, tie guy. Yeah, hypothetical, yeah. hypothetical situation. Let's say, hypothetically, I've never heard of this Slack technologies. I'm not quite sure what they do, but I do know they lost $139 million last year on sales of about $400 million. Just walk us through what Slack is and, and why investors seem to be excited to buy a company that's that's losing more than a quarter of their sales. I will tell you that my tech journalist brain is now broken where I see a company that's like, oh, they're only bleeding $100 million in cash every <laughs> oh, year. Nothing. That sounds great. <laughs> Sign me up. So the, the basic explanation of Slack is it's instant messaging designed for the workplace. And I think that undersells it a little bit. And and Slack, I think, has this issue where it is a little bit difficult to describe their software until you really use it. But again, it's instant messaging. And the idea is it, it kind of collects, you're able to kind of organize multiple people's inboxes, essentially, 
in a semi-public way that you can organize um, groups or teams and then everything that's related to, let's say, some marketing project that a team is working on will go into one channel, as Slack calls it. And only the people who are on that channel need to see it. So it avoids the sort of reply all uh, pain that we have sometimes felt inside (laughs) of companies. And, you know, it also does a good job of kind of connecting to other systems. So I know companies, for example, that um, all of the customer service requests or complaints, no matter what channel it's coming from, if it's like an angry tweet or an instant message that a customer might send through um, a company's website, it all gets sent and, and kind of distributed through Slack so that people on the East Coast, let's say, will see all of the messages no matter where it's coming from, customer service complaints from the coast that they live on. So it is a a clever piece of software. I think there are open questions about whether it is a kind of nice to have software for companies or whether it becomes an essential tool inside of a modern office. But definitely it's good software that now investors are over the moon about and on that subscription basis that you're talking on that about. subscription basis yes and they have they say they have 10 million people who use it on a daily basis inside of organizations and something like six hundred thousand kind of paying customers paying organizations how can you print out all these chats and give them to a guy like me to read is that interesting i i've never <laughs> noticed if there I, I there's probably a print option um do not do that however do not print your slack chats <laughs> but so you talk about the subscription model, but how are investors actually going about valuing a company of this sort, especially if, like you said, they are losing money like many of the other tech IPOs that we've seen lately? I mean, I think the metrics that have become important are looking at sort of recurring revenue, sort of, you know, how much money is repeatable business and also looking ahead at, at billing. So basically booked business that is not yet paid. So really growth and revenue and kind of retention rates of existing customers, those are the metrics that people look at in the absence of, you know, conventional gap profits. Another column you had that caught my eye, the headline was something like, who knows what lurks in the emails of of tech executives? You know, obviously with the antitrust scrutiny coming up on Facebook, Amazon, Google, is this the, the right time for Facebook to be trying to revolutionize the, the payment system with its own cryptocurrency? You're saying this is not a time they, <laughs> they will want to attract more attention from regulators yeah, yeah, at exactly. Facebook? Yeah, fair enough. Look, I've heard Mark Zuckerberg say a few times now in the last couple of years that they can't stop running the company and they can't stop coming out with new products and ideas because of the scrutiny they're under, which I think is true and also not true, right? They obviously want to be a little bit more cautious and careful than they would have been prior to 2006 or uh, 2016 or 2015. But they, you know, you got to keep innovating. That's the role of a tech company. Yeah, Julian, how do you think about this regulatory risk with a group as important as the FANG stocks? I mean, does it make you sort of want to look elsewhere uh, in the market or are these still going to be the the stocks that, that lead us higher? Well, when we're looking at over the balance of this year and into an election year next year, uh, we're neutral on the group. But, you know, if you look at the last 10, 20, 30 years, it's very clear the technology is the bull market. You, you, You know, we've done a lot of work that says markets can continue to go up, but technology can only underperform by a certain amount. So from our point of view, it's something we'd like to see it get further along in the election cycle. Um, Valuations are reasonable broadly 
And I would say, you know, again, when you're thinking about software in particular, it's that that phrase recurring revenue that is literally music to the street's ears. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it like we do from an options perspective, if you have a company with recurring revenue, you can actually there's like less volatility to its streams. So you can, in fact, pay more for that company. What about the IPO market this year? I know if you look at the IPO ETF, it's having its best first half of the year pretty much ever. So is this something that you guys actually think about participating in or is it just very risky and you need to wait until things kind of die down a little? Well, BTIG's Capital Markets Desk has been very, very busy, yes. uh, which is, <laughs> is, is a great thing. And, and you know, we look at that to try and gauge signs of, of froth. We're nowhere near the excesses that we saw in 1999 and 2000. And if you think about it, part of the reason that it, the optics of it over the last several months have been as busy as they've been is because you actually had a delay for the first several months of the year in getting the paperwork through because of the government shutdown. So it'll be interesting to see as we get into the, the heart of, of the summer whether there's going to be a slowdown or not. That, that, that'll be an important sign. Uh, a slowdown in issuance or a slowdown in the, the price appreciation? Of a slowdown in issuance. And if you look at it in terms of the price, there have been winners and losers. It's not all straight winners. Right. Um, right. You know, it's, uh, and, and, and they differentiated, and it isn't necessarily technology only that's captured people's imaginations. Well, Sarah, I, I'm looking at your stopwatch. Sarah keeps a stopwatch running. It's very here. intimidating. It is. Is it, it intimidating? Is. <laughs> a little bit. I'm just, just staring make at sure it. that we don't go on for too long. <laughs> but that's our cue to get to the really the most important part of the podcast, which is the craziest thing I've seen in markets ever, or at least this week, parentheses this week. We, we really haven't finalized that title of it yet. <laughs> Julian, did they warn you about this, uh, about this segment they, of ours? They absolutely did. He's um, always prepared. We try. We try. <laughs> so, so from our point of view, this week has been a great example of artificial intelligence run wild. And as you know, part of the reason that uh, you brought me here uh, to join you uh, it was, is to talk about the Fed and interest rates. Uh, very important in terms of thinking about stock prices. Well, what we noticed was if you did a uh, search for stories with the keyword yield curve <laughs> into and through the FOMC press conference this week, we saw a massive spike in that story count. And from our point of view, it really is a big justification for why the yield curve steepened nine basis points. That may not sound like a lot, but on something that was trading at 19 to go from 19 to 28, that's a huge move. So we don't know whether it was, you know, revenge of the nerds <laughs> or return of the bond vigilantes, but we do know it's a big deal. Sorry, it's it's illuminating how guys on the street use our work product here. We think they're 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 reading Actually our stories reading it, and counting. now they're just counting the words. <laughs> <and> the... <laughs> Good to know that you're really getting to the bottom of All an 800 word story. <laughs> it's, it, it is. We can start messing with it. I'm just going to write a story that just goes yield curve, yield <laughs> curve, yield curve. <laughs> You'll really mess with people. Yeah, I'm not really going to do that. Sarah, have you seen any crazy market? things this week. So something I thought was interesting was in the aftermath of the Jerome Powell presser, we saw stocks rally, we saw bonds rally, we saw golds rally, and we saw oil rally all together. And I thought it was kind of funny. Macro risk advisors called it as cats and dogs 
playing together, basically. <laughs> because on the one end, you think of bonds and gold being these safe havens, and then you think of stocks and oil being risk assets. But the reality is that now we have low interest rates. We also see the dollar falling at last. Um, so we're just seeing pretty much a, a bid to everything, which is I thought was pretty pretty crazy. Rallying everything. I think yeah. that's an old Steve Martin reference, isn't it? The cats and dogs living together. Uh, <laughs> Shira, have we warned you about this gimmick we have here? You did. I, I may I may have done it wrong, however. That's so okay. I read there was a story in the Wall Street Journal this week about Venezuela, the Venezuelan central bank basically smuggling seven oh, or eight tons yeah, yeah, of gold yeah. to be melted story. down in Uganda and then resold um, secretly in the Middle <laughs> East. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's it's it has everything, right? It's got. I'm just imagining eight <laughs> tons of gold on these Russian uh, cargo planes being flown to Uganda in the middle of the night, and then being trucked to some refinery and melted down. So they concluded that it was. I, it, That's what the Ugandan authorities said that they believe that is what happened. That's a way of Venezuela ba- basically getting cash by going around U.S. sanctions. Didn't someone tell them they were probably better off trying to smuggle an ETF, much less visible? (laughs) (laughs) And then you redeem it afterwards, and you have to find the vault where your gold is hidden? Please suggest that to the Maduro government. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, mine, I'm stretching the definition of markets here a little bit, which I'm apt to do You go to art, you go to jewelry. Oh, that was me. This week I'm going, yeah, that was you. <laughs> this week I'm going to the gambling market. That's a real market, Julian, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sports, it's legal now. Sports betting in Jersey. I can't believe, I, I still can't believe it when I read this, but so I'll, I'll just read the story, the lead of the story here from Eben uh, Novi Williams of, uh, here at Bloomberg. The National Basketball Association has come up with a way for fans to gamble real money on fake games. Have you guys seen this story? No. So what happens is they basically splice together a bunch of clips from different basketball games and create a fake game out of it. Here, I'll, I'll read you the, the sort of the nutcraft here. Betters will be dropped into the final 90 seconds of a virtual matchup between two NBA teams. The game will then splice together random possessions from various Nets-Lakers games in recent... Do we not have enough things to gamble on, Julian? My avatar is backing away from that very quickly. But I'll tell you one thing. You, with the exception of the last several weeks, you don't want to bet against Steph Curry. <laughs> the editors of that, whatever they are doing, splicing together different possessions, they've got to be talented. To match yeah. them up. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's kind of done randomly. It almost sounds like it's just a, a computer program that takes various possessions, artificial intelligence. I don't know. I'll find something better to gamble on than that. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> I've, I'll, I'll give it to you. Absolutely. <laughs> but with that said, Julian Emanuel, Shira Oviday. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Shira Oviday, is at Shira Oviday, and Bloomberg Podcast is at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.